You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Happy National Tree Day. To celebrate, we're going to take a deep dive on planting trees in a natural resource management setting. In the media, so often we hear about X number of trees being planted, which is definitely one of the key performance indicators that we should be aiming for. But unfortunately, we rarely hear about the success of these programs. Natural Resource Management, or NRM, is about integrating multiple factors in the management of what we can consider natural resources, such as biodiversity, water quality, and soil quality. Sam Dalton is a product advisor for this episode's sponsor, Arborgreen, where he uses his extensive experience in the field to help the company provide superior products and services for the people working on the ground. In this episode, we discuss how to create natural habitats that are built to last, rather than simply turning up, planting a few trees, and hoping for the best. Whether you're in the NRM sector, or you're in the built landscape, there's a lot that Sam's going to talk about that you can practically incorporate into your everyday work. Welcome to the show, Sam. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. It's fantastic to be here today. It's going to be fun, mate. Let's start with this question. Why is it important to spend energy on revegetating sites? Like, wouldn't nature just take care of it if we left it alone? That is a really good opening question. And look, the answer to that, Daniel, is no, nature wouldn't take care of it if we left an environment alone. Um, Look, there'd be some natural native plant regeneration that would occur over a period of time. But the reality is there'd also be incursion and regeneration of weed species that have got the potential Mm. to be invasive and destructive. And Daniel, this is all, I guess, dependent on what exists in and around the site. If you think about a site that's been cleared and farmed heavily, then there's going to be unlikely to have much remnant vegetation left to initiate that regeneration process. But there's probably going to be a higher weed seed load present. But Mm. then if you look at the flip side to that and you've got high quality bushland next to your site, then you might have plenty of native veg to, to kickstart that regen process, but you're still going to have some incursions of weeds to manage and you might also benefit there from a reveg program to include perhaps some of the species that should be there but aren't. Does that make mm. sense? It does. So I guess there's a term here that we need to touch on and that's the seed bank. Can you tell us about that term? Absolutely. So a seed bank refers to basically a bank of seed that's sitting in the soil that has been put there by the surrounding vegetation. So if you're looking at an area that's heavily degraded and you've had a high weed presence, let's say you've got blackberries along a creek line and you come in and you clear out all of those blackberries, that's fantastic, but you're going to have heaps of seeds sitting in the soil and they call that a seed bank. And the Mm. same sort of thing is there with native vegetation as well. Wonderful. So because there's no seeds there for the trees that we'd like to plant, someone has to go on and actually physically do it. That's exactly right. So can you tell us about how planting trees in a revegetation setting differs to planting trees in an urban setting? Absolutely. So if you think about an urban setting, um, you've typically got a bit more limited space for trees to grow. They're on small roadside verges. Uh, You've got roads, power lines and other infrastructure affecting the plant's health. You've got daily pollution from vehicles driving past and, and all those sorts of things. And the primary focus for urban trees is often for shade, recreational usage and aesthetic appeal. And that means the trees need to be selected very carefully to ensure species are suitable for the setting. They need to be maintained fairly regularly for health and they're usually only planted as individual trees, unless of course it's a garden area where you've got multiple plants put aside. But a revegetation setting is typically a wide open space. It's got plenty of area to establish a diversity of species and it's usually geared towards things like creating biodiversity or habitat for native wildlife, improving the health of the area and often the intent is for the site to begin its own process of regeneration and become a healthy bushland. And that means the plants are selected for diversity, suitability to the local area. There's less ongoing maintenance and they're typically planted using many native species. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the, I'll go off a little bit off script here, but can you tell us about some of the values that we want to incorporate into a revegetation site? You know, like, okay, so in urban areas, yeah, it's all about aesthetics. It's about recreation. It's about, you know, what makes us feel good, uh, shade. But what are some of the values that we're trying to achieve within the revegetation setting? 
That's a good question as well. So within a revegetation setting, um, biodiversity is one of the values that often comes up. And what you're looking there is uh, a variety of trees, a variety of species that's creating a, a diverse system to support a variety of our native life. So that's one that comes up a lot. Um, you're often looking at something uh, that might be to do with water quality. It's no, uh, no, I guess, no um, surprise or no accident that a lot of our water reservoirs are surrounded by native vegetation. And what that actually means is as the water runs down through that native vegetation, it gets filtered and it gets sort of clean. So when it gets into that catchment area, there's less cleaning that needs to happen afterwards. Um, mm. A revegetation could be something to do along the edge of a farm to give a windbreak, or it might be to reduce salinity or something like that. So they're sort of key focuses for reveg, which is very different from the aesthetic shade type situation for a street tree. Okay, so depending on the site, you know, we may be trying to achieve different things, whether it's just trying to get native plants back in the area for biodiversity or whether, you know, it's uh, we're trying to filtrate water or whatever it is. Yes. Can you walk us through, like, what does a typical, and this word is um, probably problematic in this setting, but what, what does a typical revegetation project look like from start to finish? Yeah, good question. So we probably can still use the word typical, and we can use the word typical because even though we look at a variety of situations, the same process can be followed through that, I think. And every good project starts with planning. Um, mm-hmm. And we've just talked about the, I guess, the focus of a different revegetation project. And so that's that's the first start of planning is to identify why you're doing it. Is it to create that biodiversity? Is it to reduce salinity? Is it for a windbreak? Working out what you're doing is going to be the starting point. And then after this, um, the two things that need to be done well before any planting can occur is to choose the species of plants needed and then go and look at what your site is like. And if it's a big project with some rarer species required, you might need to order plants even a year prior so they're ready in time for planting. Um, Then you're looking at your site. You're assessing what weeds are growing there. You're asking questions like, how long is it going to take to get this under control to the point that the new plants I'm putting in will survive? Is there erosion there that needs to be sorted out prior? Are there grazing threats from the surrounding wildlife? And then you put in place that weed control and site prep early to give your plants the best chances to thrive. And then when the site's ready, that's when the planting can occur. You put the plants in the ground and you can do that with a variety of different methods like planting seedlings or manually putting the seeds directly into the soil. That's called direct seeding. And just to throw back to what we are talking about before, what you're doing there is you're sort of adding to the seed bank. Um, And you can even supply seeds via a spray system. And then whilst you're doing the planting, that's also the time where you put on some chosen plant protection. And that might be tree guards, that might be grazing repellents, that might be putting a fence around it or similar. And then the final part of the process is the ongoing maintenance. And there's usually a time where the site is monitored to keep predators away until the plants are healthy enough to survive on their own and to keep down weeds that are competing with the young new plants. Mm-hmm. All right, so you talked about weed control there. Like, are we just saying like a, a bit of a glyphosate spray or is there a little bit more to it than that? Definitely a lot more to that. Um, there are weeds that can be dealt with by applying a short-term spray just prior to planting, and that's where you might use your glyphosate spray to do a knockdown. And there's mm. obviously organic sprays you can use if, um, you know, if herbicides are a concern, it's an organic farm. But then there are also other weeds that might create a long-term problem if they aren't dealt with well before planting. And the best thing to do is to have a site assessment at least a year prior to doing the work. So you've got enough time to deal with some of these long-term weed threats. Um, And then once they're done, and I'll give you an example, uh, you might have some gorse and some blackberry on your site. Now, they're what we call woody weeds. And the seed bank, um, the seeds from gorse can last a very, very, very long time in the soil. So even if you take out that initial threat of the mature plants, you're going to get some coming up whilst you do your revegetation and they'll need spot spraying through that as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess that the weeds are going to provide a few different challenges for establishing trees, uh, namely shading out and nutrient competition. Would that be the major two problems with weeds? Yeah, absolutely. So basically if you if you look at all the trials that people have done on seedlings that are planted in direct competition with existing weeds they're going to grow at a far slower rate than those planted where weed control mm. was done near to the seedling you just imagine each seedling is trying to get a drink of water 
um, at the same time, you've got a big, healthy weed drinking it all for itself. It just doesn't work. So the mm-hmm. idea is to eliminate that competition, both from the shade, the nutrient, the water perspective. So you're giving your reveg the best chance to survive. Perfect. Okay, so we've got our site now. We've got it prepared. We know exactly what we want from the site, what we want to achieve. What are some of the factors that go into determining what the best trees are for the particular revegetation project? Like, what are the factors do we need to um, do we need to sort of discuss? Absolutely. I think that comes back to the reason you're doing the project ahead in the first place. And there's been an evolution of understanding on what trees are best suited um, over time. If we go back to that initial thought where we were looking at the planning and we say, hey, this project's a windbreak, then the species we're going to choose are going to represent a cross-section of plants with good height interspersed with trees or shrubs of a medium height to fill in the gaps between. If you're looking at a project to reduce salinity, then you're going to want a salt-tolerant species that can deal with the elevated salinity levels in the soil and bring that to a point that it's then healthy enough to support some other species. Um, If you're looking at a site where you're wanting to increase biodiversity and recreate a healthy ecosystem for your local habitat, then species are often selected based on what's called the pre-European Vegetation Association. And that basically refers to the species that were growing there prior to European settlement and before mass land clearing occurred. And there's heaps of resources around um, that people can use to work out was there, and as well as looking at the remnant vegetation pocket that exists on the site or close by, because the remnant veg that's on site or nearby are going to tell us what was there originally and give us a bit of a guide. So it is very handy to know what was there before when we're trying to recreate habitat. So, you know, essentially this is the genetic stock. There are a lot of nuanced relationships between plants, insects, etc., that exist within a, you know, a, a space of land over vast periods of time and it's constantly changing. So I think it really is important to consider what was there before if we're going to try and preserve the ecosystem and, you know, the diversity that exists within our landscapes. Absolutely. And we're looking, you know, that term's often thrown up in the revegetation field is genetic diversity. We talk Mm. about local plant provenance, which means getting species that are from the local area because they're more suited to that. But there's also been a lot of talk about genetic diversity and bringing in the same species from a different area to try and increase the strength of the plant. A little bit similar to like what you get in the human sphere where you, you, um, you know, you want genetic diversity within a human relationship and the children that come from that are healthier. And we know mm. you're not advised to have relationships with those very close to you genetically <laughs> because of the health problems. Um, and it's and plants can be a little bit like that. And it's, it's a new field there, but there's a lot of research mm. being done in that area. And also one of the other things that I've noticed in the revegetation sphere lately, Daniel, is that people are bringing plants, plants from slightly drier climates. And they're bringing that uh-huh. down because of the expectation that it's going to be a bit drier long term. And so they want to make sure they're preparing for that long term. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense, but then there's also the other side of the um, the other side of the situation, which is that sometimes when you bring in genetic stock, it can actually muck up the genetic um, gene pool. So, for example, in Cranbourne Gardens, they have um, some native peas. Um, what's the native pea? The main native pea that everyone uses, the vine, the creeper. Uh, starts with an H. Berger. Hardenbergia, yes. Yes. So at Cranbourne, they have some um, Hardenbergia that's growing sort of just wild uh, in the national park just out the back of them. And that's the reason why they actually can't plant cultivated Hardenbergia because, yes, that genetic, um, the genetic male parts, the pollen will actually end up in the national park and actually could potentially wipe out that whole species of Hardenbergia. Wow. That's an excellent example. Mm. That's absolutely an excellent example. And I know in some of the early stages of revegetation, the idea was if it's in Australia, it's a native. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, you'd have the the sallow wattle or, and things like that that are brought over. And I've seen the Acacia saligna establish around uh, the sort of Malang, Clayton, Lake Alexandrina part of South Australia. And it's just gone rough and it's just mm-hmm. covered the area there and dominated everything else. So, yeah, species selection is a, a big part of revegetation. Mm. So I guess if you're in revegetation, this is something that you really need to know about. Hopefully there are people who are making the decisions who already know the importance of that decision. Absolutely. There's some amazingly brilliant people out there who are looking at all of this. And and I've been privileged to be involved with some of those projects where they've looked at that right down from a macropod type level all the way up to the mature trees and even looked at the bird species that are coming in over the course of that project. Some great work going on in this space. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's go back to trees again. 
Sure. So we're planting trees. Um, depending on the size, I guess we have a few different choices for tree stakes and ties. Um, like what what are your recommendations around choosing the right tree stakes and, and ties for that project? Honestly, I have rarely seen tree stakes and ties used in a re project. I right. don't think I can think of a single re project where I staked and tied up a tree other than one that had two mature feature trees at its entrance. And the reason for that is Reveg is about doing on a big scale. And so mm. usually what you're doing is putting in seeds or you're putting in young seedlings. So no physical support for those is needed. And we want mm. these to be as healthy as possible from day dot without that sort of ties and, and everything happening. So you're just going to let that sapling blow about in the breeze, basically train itself up um, to become quite nice and strong. To a degree, some of the tree guards that we use have a little bit of a, a nursery type effect. The idea is that the seedlings are grown in a nursery where they're obviously very sheltered and then a good nursery will put it through a hardening process where they'll be moved out into the sun a little bit, they'll change a little bit of the nutrients, um, change a little bit of the watering and get them used to a bit more weather and then when they're put in the ground, they might have a tree guard that will shield out um, some of the excessive wind but it allows enough for them to move back and forth and start to develop a strong root ball. And the idea is to sort of get them successively more and more hardened and used to the natural environment because that's where we want them to survive long term. Okay. So you, um, how do you like prevent animals from grazing them? Like let's say kangaroos or sometimes, you know, they're a deer in the area. Like, and you're not staking them up. How do you prevent them from being grazed upon? Yeah, that's where the tree guards come in. And I guess that's where Arbor Green have a huge amount of expertise on that is tree guards are designed basically for the type of animal that are being grazed on. And you mm. can get deer or cattle if you're in a, a, a situation over in Victoria, around the Dandenong Ranges, they've got a lot of deer coming through there. Here in South Australia, we have paddock tree programs where you've got cattle and so forth, and you get big steel mesh guards that are like nearly two metres tall, and they're made mm. out of a five mil steel. They go with a couple of stakes in and barbed wire, and they're designed to protect that plant to grow up to be a big shade tree. And then you'll get down to your kangaroos and you might have a steel mesh or a poly mesh guard that's about, you know, 1.2 metres tall or 90 centimetres tall. And that's just designed to give it enough protection to stop a kangaroo from being able to graze it. And then if you're working in an area where you know rabbits are going to be your issue, then you can step it right down to the little fluted plastic guards. And that's just a small triangle about half a metre high. And that just stops mm -hmm. the rabbits from being able to graze that until it pops up and over. So they're the key aspects, the tree guards. Um, other things people do are fence off a project. If you've got an area where it might be more expensive to put tree guards on 5,000 trees and you know it's cheaper to put a mesh fence around that, that can be another option. And then finally, mm. there's also some deterring um, sprays. And we do one which is pretty unique in Australia called the Sentry. And that's a carefully formulated spray that you can pump out over the seedlings and it, it puts off the animals from grazing both due to the texture and due to the smell. Ooh, does that work on possums too? I haven't used it on possums. Uh, I haven't had a lot of feedback on possums because right. typically possums don't provide threat to revegetation sites. Mm. Um, more in the revegetation sites, you're looking at your rabbits, your wallabies, your kangaroos and things like that. Possums don't really um, – they do they do graze on things like vegetable gardens and so forth. And yeah. I know in, a, in <laughs> an urban setting, possums can do a lot of damage. But when you're talking about a large revegetation site – they typically don't have the same sort of impact. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm thinking about certainly my experience as a maintenance gardener in urban areas. Possums have been one of the big ones, particularly if there's a fence nearby or they're on their run and you want to put a, um, a, a star jasmine creeper on that fence or something, just forget about it because <laughs> yeah, they're going yeah. to chew right through it. They're going to knock it down. That would be an interesting <laughs> trial to do. Maybe we can give yeah. you some sentry and you can spray it on some vines somewhere and see how it goes. Yeah, if you could, that would be great because I know of uh, actually quite a few around this area. Yeah. Cool. All right, well, let's get back to trees again then. <laughs> sure, absolutely. So, okay, so let's say we're maintaining our re-veg site now. Like, I guess typically budgets aren't necessarily unlimited for this sort of work. So no. how – what are your tips around maintaining revegetation sites with you know small saplings um, that can help you do it on a budget? Absolutely. So I guess one of the primary things is put into your budget some sort of maintenance. There mm -hmm. needs to be some allowance in that, and even if that means reducing the size of your revegetation project a little bit to allow you to have a healthy project long term, you're better off doing a smaller area well 
than a larger yeah. area poorly. Um, so it's often part of the initial project with around two to three years of follow-up weed control, and that's one of the most important parts to allow the plants to establish and become dominant, as well as making sure you keep away the grazing animals. And then after that point, um, the site needs to be maintained with infill planting, perhaps a species that needs shade to exist that wouldn't have survived the original planting, or you've reduced the salinity with your original planting, so now you're popping in some more species to give it more diversity and some ongoing weed control. Um, one of the, actually, I'm going to raise this too, Daniel, this is a, a good point to make. There's a lot of bush care groups that do exactly this, and they maintain mm. bush sites all over Australia. And it's worth getting online and looking for these groups, because there's often um, a group in your area, and they're usually comprised of people who have got passion and skill who want to preserve these sites for our future generations. And they'll often go out to the local native parks and they'll do volunteer days and uh, they'll often get some grant funding from government to certain tools. And if you're connected in with a group like that, that can give you skills and things to manage your own revegetation that you might not have coming into that originally. Mm. So even enthusiasts can get involved, like you don't have to do it for a job. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, mm. some of our key customers are actually the, um, the sort of land care groups uh, and volunteer groups. Uh, there's one down at Scott Creek here near us, a wonderful group who have been working down there uh, post and pre the bushfire that went through a couple of years ago. And they've been hugely instrumental in stopping some of the weeding curses that have come through from the bushfire and bringing that back to a healthy bushland. I love to hear that. So what are some of the biggest costs like for failure of establishing trees intelligently? Because I, I just want to go back to what you said before about like you need a maintenance budget because I think a lot of the time people come in, they plant things and they never see it again. So like tell me about the wasted money there. I guess uh, if you don't have the right planning, you don't have the right weed control, you've got species that aren't suited to the area and they're not protected from predators, it's just like throwing money down the drain. Yeah. And no one wants to do that. You know, it makes sense to do it right the first time. And the other thing is, if many of the plants die, it's more expensive to replant the site a second time around because you have to navigate around the existing plants. That makes your weed control more time-consuming and expensive. Let's say your original weed control was putting a boom spray over it. You can't do that now because you've got existing plants there. And then yeah. the planting is more time-consuming and expensive. The tree guards you used originally need to be removed and then re-guarded. It's more expensive. So if you don't do it right the first time, the second time round, it's just going to cost a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And if the plants don't survive the first time around, then you're not achieving that initial objective. Whatever that was, a windbreak, salinity, biodiversity, you need to make sure you've got that plan in place to make sure your initial objective happens. Okay, so some of the challenges we've got so far, they're grazing from herbivores. We've got weeds. We've got improper planting, which if you've listened to this podcast for a while now, you already know about proper planting. I'd urge you to listen to episode 60, How to Plant Trees Like a Pro with Jason Gooden, also from Arbor Green, because he really goes into basically how to plant a tree correctly. Most people do it wrong. Can you tell us about some of the biggest challenges in natural resource management and like what are reveg professionals facing every day? I guess aside from the ones we've already talked about, there are seasonal impacts that we don't have any control over. There's drought, there's flood, and they're probably some of the biggest challenges that we've got because the, because you have to plan your project so early on, a year beforehand, and start to get funding for that. And if you're working within a contractor sphere, these projects are often funded by the government. So these things are put in place a long time before it happens. And then you can get to the year when you need to do your planting and the season can be entirely different. (laughs) So that's a big challenge. And you need to be thinking on your feet. You need to be agile. You need to be going, right, we were going to plant an autumn planting this year, but we're going to have heaps less rain. It's not coming through till this month. So we're going to postpone till now. Or maybe the opposite, you might go, we're going to have a massively wet year. I remember one project I did where we had planned for a spring planting. And the rain we had, Daniel, was about two or three times more than we were expecting Mm. for those first three months. And we planted in October in South Australia in this particular area. Now, I would never normally do that. But because of that excessive rainfall we had, there was so much moisture around. If we had to put them in the ground earlier, then they just would have rotted off and died. Mm. So that's a big impact, the seasonal challenges. Um, The grazing ones that we've talked about are the big ones. And I think that's where we can help as Arborgreen. Um, is that this is where this is our space. This is what we're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Is other than we can't control the weather, we're not that good. We'd love to be, but we're not. <laughs> but other than that, 
we we look at these problems every day. We have customers ringing every day saying, I've got this problem, what can you do to fix it? And that's where we have heaps of passion to try and uh, put together a protection plan for those plants. So something that Arbor Green does is you're not just someone there, you're not just a service to sell products, you're also there. I think I was speaking with Mark and he was saying, you guys are more like a trusted partner. Absolutely. Look, my role within the company, Daniel, is a product analyst. And what that means is I look at the products and I analyze them and I I get feedback from customers and I say, how's this working? Is it good? Is it bad? How can we change this? How can we improve this? What other problems have you got that we can solve? So that's, that's one of our focuses. It's not just about putting a product out there and hoping it works. It's about taking on board that feedback and earning that trust. And we've got people who work within the company um, who have, have worked in this sphere for a very long time. We've got people who have worked in the nurseries for decades. We've got people who have worked in revegetation, such as myself, for decades. We've got people who have worked in the urban spaces for decades. So we bring that into our into our products and into our desire to be a partner, a trusted partner in this whole process. And so that experience is what helps you give advice to customers like, okay, so the season isn't what's on the calendar. The season is, well, it's still raining, so let's not plant. Absolutely. Yep. And that all plays into into the advice that we're giving. So what are some of the other most common mistakes that professionals working in reveg um, sort of tend to make? Absolutely. Uh, timing. Timing is one. Mm. Um, the time that you put the plant in the ground is going to dramatically increase or decrease the survival rate of the plant. You leave it too late, your plant roots aren't going to be down deep enough to, to survive a dry summer. If your plants are put in too early, they're going to need extra watering to survive before the rains arrive. Um, if you put your planting in, your seedling in too deep, you might get cholera. If you put it in too shallow, you get the seedling dry out. Um, making sure the seed seedling has its root ball completely covered with soil so it isn't exposed to the sun but not so deep that it's you know so covered in soil that it gets rot water Mm. crystals is another one daniel it doesn't happen often but i've seen people be very overzealous with water crystals and they're like this is awesome we're going to pop this in the hole with the seedling so they chuck a handful of water crystals down in the bottom put the plant on top it all looks good rains overnight guess what happens those water (laughs) crystals swell all these seedlings get pushed out of the ground so even those sorts of things are mistakes that we've seen happen all the time with people who aren't, um, you know, as familiar with that process. Mm. And then, you know, the seedling itself, you've got to make sure there's no air pockets around the root ball. You can put it in the ground and have it look good whilst it's wet. But if you've got a bit of air around that roots down the bottom, as soon as it dries out, it hasn't got that soil contact to retain that moisture. That's going to die long term. Yeah, there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, as soon as the roots hit the air, they just, they call it air pruning, right? Exactly. And if you have got the plant in the ground properly, there shouldn't be any roots touching the air. They should have soil all the way around it. Actually, that is a pretty good segue into, I'd like to ask you about the the air pots. Can you tell us about those? Can do. Yeah. So air pots are a pot that's designed to grow a seedling very fast, um, a lot faster than you typically get in your standard circular circular pots. Um, They're made out of a, a plastic that's got, what would you call them? not perforations, but uh, little pockets all the way around that expose the roots to the air. And it means that the the seedling as it grows, the seedling roots go out, they get pruned off, and then it starts to shoot out back from further along the plant. If you imagine a hedge, Daniel, when Mm. you trim a hedge, the more you trim a hedge, the thicker it encourages the growth from those dormant buds uh, back in the plant. And so you end up with a very thick growth in that hedge. And it's the same with the root system. If you're constantly pruning off around the outside, then you're getting that uh, the new roots uh, starting to grow from the inside. In a normal pot, you would have the base of it is the only place where you're going to get that root pruning effect. So you'll get um, roots that circle round and round and round the pot and then head down to the bottom before they start getting pruned off. Whereas with mm-hmm. an air pot, you're getting them pruned off all the way around the outside of the pot as well as the bottom. So you've got a very, very, very strong root system. Yeah, there's far more roots, but they're not quite as long and um, they're not choking each other out like the circling roots do. Absolutely. They just don't circle because the, mm-hmm. the shape of the pot and the design with those those curves on the outside and the, the way it gets air pruned, uh, they just don't grow around in circles. And that makes for a much superior product when you plant it into the ground too, because sometimes if roots have been circling for too long, they never really right themselves. Absolutely. And 
I'm sure you've seen photos of trees that have been pulled out of the ground that have died after 10 years. And mm. this plant has had a root that's turned around on itself when it's been in a small pot. And then it's been okay when it's young. And then as it's gotten older, that root has turned around on itself and basically cut itself off. And then mm. the plant just falls over. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very sad to see and it happens all the time. You, you might be saying, oh, well, what's wrong with this tree? Uh, spray all the fungus on it you like, but yep. the problem is in the ground. So Absolutely. The problem happened when the plant was being grown. Mm. Yeah, when it was grown, when it was purchased or when it was grown. Mm. Mm, absolutely. So let's talk about sustainability now, Sam. Sure. How can professional natural resource management people ensure that they're planting trees in a way that's sustainably, you know, environmentally friendly and minimizes negative impacts on local ecosystems? That's a good question. Because the whole goal, it's a big one. (laughs) (laughs) But the whole goal of revegetation is to have a positive impact on your local ecosystem and create an event environmentally sustainable Mm. situation. So it's a very relevant question. Um, Look, throwing back to one of the things we touched on before, I think one of the main ways to ensure it's environmentally sustainable is to ensure the species selected are local native or species that don't have the potential to become invasive and therefore damage it. Um, And we used the example before of the Acacia saligna uh, from Western Australia that was used in reveg plantings in New South Wales and SA and naturalised in the coastal areas. And then it's been very detrimental. Um, And that's not a sustainable situation. Um, Making sure the species have genetic diversity is another one. Another way to make Mm. sure we're being environmentally sustainable is to consider the tools, the containers and the products we're using. Are the pots, the plants grown in reusable or a one-use plastic? If they're a one-use plastic, can they be recycled? Are we using tree guards that are biodegradable and safe to leave on site? Or if we're using a guarding system that's plastic, have we factored in the time and resources to collect the guards and recycle them? I think the principles of reduce, reuse and recycle are just as relevant to a tree planting program as they are to any of life activities. And we're all responsible for this, even within the context of a reveg project. And is that something that Arbor Green can provide advice on? Like, let's say someone who's really making sure that they're doing much better than the average. Like, you know, most people are doing pretty good in natural resource management, but some people are really diehard on making sure that there's nothing um, plastic that isn't reused. Like, is that something that you guys can provide um, like expert advice on for people? We can. It's a space that we're growing in and it's a space that everyone's growing in, but it's a space that we're passionate about. Um, Daniel, there's a lot of products that come to us and they're wrapped in plastic and there's mm-hmm. um, often plastic that's used to go out with products. I know the wrapping we use at some of our bigger warehouses and we're moving that over to our others is a biodegradable wrapping. So that's wow. another way we can use that. Um, the We often got a heavy focus on recycled materials. Um, we're passionate about developing our biodegradable tree guards. Uh, we currently got a whole range on there. We've got some that are home compostable that you can leave out on site or even put in your home compost pit and they'll break down. Uh, We've got others that are biodegradable and whilst they're not home compostable, you can still leave them on site and it's going to be a longer period of time until they break down. So we're constantly looking at ways that we ourselves can be more responsible with those principles of reduce, reuse and recycle. Mm -hmm. It is a space, um, Daniel, where there's a, a cost and that's probably one of the biggest factors at the moment is the cost of producing something that's that's biodegradable is often three to four times as much as you might get for the plastic alternative. And yeah. and customers will go, I just don't want to pay that. But that's where we're trying to, to get those things in place so that we can do that. Um, the, other, the other aspect, I guess, of something being biodegradable is the lifespan. So we've got some tree guards that are excellent and they're a one-year lifespan. But if you have unprecedented rain, which we had recently, and we, we all saw the floods and everything that happened over the end of last year, then that can accelerate the rate of breakdown of that tree guard to the point that it doesn't give you that one-year protection mm. from um, from the grazing animals. So there's this bit of a balance point with a biodegradable product as opposed to its lifespan. And that's where we're constantly adapting in that space and learning and growing and, and, and changing our recommendations on a product and, and putting out new things that can help achieve that goal of sustainability. And that's why I think it's so good to have the um the advice so like some people are willing to spend the extra money on the biodegradable um you know tree guards and stuff like that and i think that having that expert advice there really makes things easier for people because they can just go and ask hey i have this specific question what do you think about this absolutely absolutely 
yeah, mm -hmm. having the advice there, being able to ask those questions is such an important part of it. So what about like innovative techniques and tools? Can you tell us about what tools you guys have and what innovative techniques that people can use in natural resource management to work more efficiently and get more done at the end of the day? Yeah, cool. Absolutely. So I guess if you're looking at the tools that you're actually putting the trees in the ground, um, there's a number of ways you can do that. You've got to get the seedlings out onto the site. So there's, you can carry them out individually in the pots that you've got with, which can be quite quite time consuming, quite labour intensive. You can take a, a kidney tray is one that we look after people uh, in this area with. It's a, it's a tray in the shape of a kidney that's got padded shoulder and waist straps and goes around your waist and can hold a, a whole heap of seedlings to take out into the field. Um, putting the, the plants in the ground, there's a number of different tools you can use. There's a, a speed spade, which creates a narrow pocket to slide that seedling into. There are planters we sell called Hamilton planters, which take a plug of soil out. And the soil is uh, exactly matches the root ball size of the seedling being planted. So mm. we've got ones designed for the different types of pots. So you get that perfect root soil contact. Um, another one is about is the potapaki. And these are brilliant. They're a piece of machinery with jaws that open directly into the soil. And it's a long tube to slide the seedling down. And that means you can plant standing up. Um, they're super quick. My own record is 2,400 seedlings in one day planted with a pot of paki. <laughs> so you can get a lot of trees in the ground in a short space of time with these systems. So you mentioned there that um, one of the tools, I forget the name of it, you just mentioned it, but it allows for um, just the root ball size to be um, taken out. Now that actually goes against some advice that we hear in the urban landscape. And it's interesting to touch on this because in the urban landscape, we say we want a hole that's twice as wide. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the nuance there? Absolutely, I can. So what you're looking at in the urban landscape is a different context to revegetation. But these particular planters that I mentioned are not necessarily going to be the best solution in every area. So if you imagine a soil, Daniel, where you've got a heavy clay soil mm. and you're taking out a plug with this, then you're leaving a plug that is smooth sides and mm -hmm. it's going to be a little bit harder for that seedling to get the roots into the soil. It's just basically like a pot. It's like almost like a pot, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Whereas if you're talking in a soil that's a nice sandy loam where you're not going to have that issue, taking out that plug is exactly what you want because it's just going to mean the root soil contact is matched up. Now, in a revegetation context, it's a little bit different to an urban setting. Because in a revegetation context, the focus is on getting a vast number of seedlings into the ground. And if you're creating a hole for every seedling that's going to be twice the size of the plant, then you're um, increasing your labour cost and therefore your installation cost significantly. Mm. Whereas and with an back. urban setting, and you're back. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas with your urban setting, you're putting in, you might go down a street and you might put in 10 trees. And those, those 10 trees probably cost you, you know, in the vicinity from $75 up to $100 if people are going with bigger trees. And so mm -hmm. it's a huge investment with a lot of resources thrown at that one tree, whereas your seedlings out in the revegetation setting might cost you anywhere from, you know, 70 cents up to $2. So you've got a heaps different cost there. All of that being said, there are projects where you will create that hole that's bigger than the seedling and you can get petrol-powered augers and put that in the ground and that will drill a hole down to a certain depth and then you can have that hole a little bit wider than the seedling and then you are kind of using that same sort of process. So it's about matching the right tool and the right process to the right site. Mm. Again, augers often sort of glaze the sides of the hole. What tips do you have for someone working in really heavy clay where even the augers just glazing the sides and you're just ending up with a slightly bigger pot? Absolutely. So in heavy clay soil like that, we've got some augers that have got a, a tungsten sort of edging on them with little fingers. And what they actually do, they scrape up the sides of the hole. So you're left with a rough edge. Um, the other thing is if you're working in that area, you can get your auger blade and you can actually turn it around a little bit once you've done your hole. So you're making a bit of a wider area and you're having a lot of loose soil around the seedling. Mm. So little tips like that can really help with that uh, reducing the glazing effect of the sides. Yeah, it really is all about the roots at the end of the day, isn't it? It is. It is. That's yeah. priority number one. Yeah, yeah. So what are some other misconceptions around revegetation that we haven't touched on yet? That's a good question, Daniel. Um, <laughs> misconceptions around revegetation. Look, I think there's a bit of a conception that probably stems from 
the urban environment that native plants are ugly. Uh, and, yeah. you know, you've got an urban setting where it's all about the roses and the pretty flowers and everything. I think people have this conception that native bushland and native plants are this sort of ugly, dry, dreary sort of sort of plants. They're not. Once you start to get into this space and you look at some of the flowers, they're a lot more delicate, but they're absolutely stunning um, throughout the well, a lot through the year, actually, throughout the spring, throughout the summer, throughout the winter. So that's a misconception. Another misconception is that revegetation is a set and forget thing. Stick the tree in the ground and let it run its course. Mm. True, a well-planned project will eventually have aspects that are self-sufficient, but there's ongoing management needed in the same way that any living thing needs to be maintained. And another big one, Daniel, is that revegetation is a waste of space. And you can have mm. landholders who say, why do I want to use my land to plant some trees when I can use it for cropping or grazing and make some more money from it? Sure, mm. that's an understandable question to be asked, but you can address those concerns by understanding the benefits to the location from the revegetation. And often these benefits don't just translate to environmental benefits, but they can translate to a real-life dollar value to, for the landholder. Think of a project where revegetation filters all the water running down. You then get a dam that's full of clean water for your stock to drink. Or a project where you put a windbreak and there's very real life case studies where you can see the effects of a windbreak and how that increases the yield of the crop in that paddock because of the fact it doesn't have wind tearing across it all the time. Absolutely. I'd like to point our listeners to episode 64, Shelter Belts, aka Hedgerows, aka Windbreaks with Dr. Ian Smith. And he does actually talk about um, the economic benefits for farmers of shelter belts. He um, he was an agriculture extension officer at the time where that was his job was to actually provide feedback to farmers. Absolutely. Absolutely. So also I wanted to touch on something that you said about the misconception that um, native grasslands or, you know, revegetated spaces can be unaesthetically unaesthetically pleasing like not aesthetically pleasing i really agree with you on that that that's not the truth and i think that more people are starting to see it that way because at mifcus this year at the melbourne international flower and garden show we actually had one particular garden that a lot of people were really interested in and sort of a lot of people flocked around it and it was just native grasses and some yellow buttons and um, a few other things. So it was a very much um, the focus on that native grassland, and it was a real crowd highlight. Absolutely, absolutely. I've got a I've got a native garden at home, probably because of my mm-hmm. passion in this space. And I'll often get people come around, and they're like, "Oh, that's so beautiful!" And then I say it's a native, and they go, "No." That's not native garden. I'm like, yeah, it is. You've got you know, some grey foliage texture here. You've got purple here. You've got pink flowers here. You've got purple there. And they go, wow. I was privileged enough to um, to look after for a while, Daniel, a garden that actually featured uh, with Sophie from obviously the, the gardening show. Mm. And it was in, uh, in Port Elliot up on top of the hill there. It's a native garden that I was involved with right from its conception in taking out the olive trees and all the weeds there. And then there's hectares and hectares. It's a 13-hectare site overlooking um, the, the bluff there. And it's just stunning what they've achieved with their native plants there. And uh, those sorts of things are, are things that we need to be more aware of, is that there's, a, there's an aesthetic value to this that mm. we, we often don't see. Yeah, it's not all just about the environment. It's also about the joy that these spaces can bring us as humans. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. So, look, we've already kind of covered this, but did you have anything else to say around some of the benefits of, like, the partnership aspect that you guys offer it with Arbergreen, like, and the collaboration to help people create their own successful projects? Yeah. Yeah, like you say, successful partnership is about collaboration. It's about understanding each other's goals. It's about working in a way to provide more opportunity to achieve a greater outcome than you can achieve as an individual. And within the context of a reveg project, specifically with Arbergreen, this might look like having collaborative discussions early in the project's timeframe. It might look yeah. like reviewing the specific desired project outcomes together, looking at the KPIs, its potential grazing pressure, the budgets available, and doing this, even if it's a year before you're going to put your project in place, it's going to get those gears rolling in the mind and it's going to allow a supplier to recommend support and products that are going to be specifically tailored to that situation and therefore increase the likelihood of the project's success. And I personally feel the earlier you have this discussion, the more chance there is of understanding the project at a deeper level. Mm. And for us at Arbergreen, I feel like we're extremely well-placed to continue being this trusted partner because we've got outlets, as you know, 
Daniel in South Australia, Victoria and New South Wales. And then, as I mentioned earlier, team members who have worked in this space for decades. So we're able to give that on a, on a practical experience basis. Love that. I think that's so valuable. So look, let's have a look at now. Let's pretend that we've, you know, we've, we've revegetated, we're maintaining it. And now we're looking at, you know, measuring whether or not we've had a successful project or where we need to improve. Can you tell us about what metrics can you use to evaluate a successful project or, you know, where you need to improve it? Absolutely. So that ties in uh, very, very strongly with the objectives that were initially set. So if we're looking at plant survival, uh, typically a KPI based on the percentage survival rate is applied to the project. 100% survival of plants in a re context is pretty rare, but mm. upwards of 90% should be achievable. Um, in terms of other specific project objectives, a windbreak next to a crop, the increase in the yield from the paddock due to less wind pressure could be the metric used to evaluate that impact higher profit margin for the landholder. If you're trying to reduce salinity, you can measure the groundwater salinity, and that could be the metric, the KPI for how successful the project is. You mm-hmm. might look at water quality, and you might be monitoring the water quality in a watercourse or a dam, and then as you those plants grow, and you can test the water quality and see how many toxic leachates are in there. Um, biodiversity, grid counts of native regeneration over successive years might be how the impact is measured finding out whether it's becoming self-sustaining or as close as possible to, or even bird life. Uh, Mm. One project I was involved with, we set up a trail cam. This was an awesome project. And we set up that trail cam before planting even started. And we just had the odd crow fly past and sit on there. And then over the successive years, we monitored that camera and we had all these photos coming in. We saw an increase in the diversity of bird life starting to utilize the site. What a great Mm. outcome that is. Mm. So there's a wide range of metrics you can use to evaluate the impact and the success. And it all depends on what the original goal of that project was. I'm an insect guy and I love insects. Would you, um, I guess one thing you could do would just be to put a sticky trap out and count the diversity of different species of insect. Yes, absolutely. I'm not an insect guy, so I'm going to be (laughs) completely out of my depth talking about this. Oh, I'm out of my depth too, but I'm interested in it. (laughs) Interested in it, yeah. But look, that is is certainly a factor. Um, My father works in the dung beetle space. And he's mm-hmm. um, heavily monitoring the impact of dung beetles on, on a lot of areas in farms and things like that. So I, I do know that the insects are a very good indicator of the, of the health. I know we work with some um, wonderful people in ecologically managed vineyards, and they focus very heavily on insect health when they're doing their revegetation projects and they look at planting species around the vines that are going to bring in insects that are going to be of benefit to eating the insects that are damaging the vines. So insects um, are definitely another metric that people would use to to measure the success of a project. Look, I know it's a little bit off topic, but you mentioned dung beetles there, and I just can't move on because I know that it's actually a very interesting topic. Can you just um, briefly discuss what's going on in Australia with dung beetles? Lots is going on in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> it's Like you say, it's very off topic here. Um, <laughs> but look, I'm happy to share a little bit that basically dung beetles have been recognised as something that take... Uh, the waste product from cattle uh, and other stock and bury it in the soil. And so what's happened is we've brought over animals to use um, for for our farms, for our food, but we haven't brought over the natural ecosystem that was typically uh, dealing with the, the waste from those animals. And then we've mm-hmm. crammed these animals into small paddocks and that waste has then been consolidated in a smaller area and become a problem. And so dung beetles, there's been a lot of research through various agencies where they've actually been brought in from overseas, properly quarantined and everything, of course. And then lots of studies have been done in how they actually work, in what season, in what area to start to get rid of that cattle waste. And there's lots of projects where they've measured crop yield, um, getting rid of getting rid of those sort of stagnant piles that come from a pile of dung on the ground. Um, we've done a lot of work where dung beetles have been matched to indicator tree species because a tree is a good indication of what the soil is like and what the moisture is like and that therefore can help set some parameters to whether the beetle's going to do well in that area or not. So mm-hmm. look, there's heaps of stuff going on in this space. Um, you jump on Google and type in dung beetles, you're going to find heaps of stuff <laughs> coming up all around Australia. 
Should do another episode about that at some point. <laughs> you should. If you want to, I can give you some good context for that, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, it is very interesting. I mean, my parents have a cattle farm, so it, it's okay. very fascinating. But yeah. uh, let's just keep moving on. Absolutely. I guess I only really have one final question, and it's a question I always like to ask guests. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? Now, this doesn't have to be on topic. It can be about anything in the world. Wow, that's a huge question. It is, I know. And it's funny that this is the one that trips everyone up. All the specific answers are fine, but then if you yeah. ask people, <laughs> what is do you want to talk about? <laughs> else we'd like you to know? I think the thing that comes to mind on this is try and have a broad vision when you're looking into things like revegetation. And I'm going to tie in a little bit to revegetation, but it probably applies to life, is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution to life. And in a reveg context, we can see that because there's so many factors that can come in and change how you might do something one year and then the next year you might do something a completely different way. Mm-hmm. And I'd encourage people to try and think objectively, not just about reveg, but about life itself and be open always to learning and growing new things. So well said. I think we sometimes, I don't know what it is, sometimes – I don't know if it's an ego thing or what, but sometimes we get stuck in the mindset of our beliefs are somehow us, but they're yep. not. They're just things that are happening in our imagination and we can change our mind at any time. We could stay in our own little silo and look, there's yeah. so much more out there <laughs> and we need to get out of that silo and start really observing and looking at life. What a beautiful note to end it on. Thank you so much for a great chat, Sam. Not a problem at all, Daniel. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you. Check the show notes to get in touch with Sam directly if you have any questions about what we've talked about today. And save this episode to give it another listen in a couple of weeks to squeeze the juice out of it. Maybe you know somebody in your network who would benefit from hearing this information as well, so please do share a link with them. If you'd like to learn about planting trees successfully in the urban landscape, check on episode 60 with Jason Gooden. If you're interested in growing trees and selling them on the nursery side, have a listen to episode 160 with Bruce Durant. And if you'd like to learn about new, innovative products that are shaping the way we work with trees in NRM and landscaping, click on episode 154 with Mark Jarvis. If you've already listened to those, there are over 160 other episodes for you to choose from, which should keep you busy on your morning commute for quite a while. 